My wife and I have a wedding anniversary coming up this week, and such events have a way of thrusting you back on a time of memories and recollections and such. And one in particular that I was uh, thinking about just this past week actually occurred very, very early on. It's, it was a, oh my goodness, if a camera had been, I'm so glad it wasn't, but um, a comical event in which we, we ran out of gas on one Saturday morning on our way back from taking our dog to her obedient school graduation. Uh, this was in my little Volkswagen Golf, a great little car in its day when it wasn't blowing hoses and whatnot. But anyway, a great little car. But you know, no matter how great your car is, there are these gauges on the instrument panel that it kind of helps to pay attention to, one of which is the fuel gauge. And, and you know, no car, no matter how well running it may or may not be, no car is going to get very far without fuel. And I was reflecting on that this week, and I was reflecting on my own heart and this uh, morning and this occasion, and it struck me that too often in my own life, and I know too often in, in many of your lives, you can identify far too much, far more than you would care to, with my car sputtering on the side of the road. You're out of gas. You've got no fuel. Now, what's happened? I'm specifically speaking here to Christians, okay? Those of you who are not, I'm glad you're here, but I'm just asking you to listen in at this point. What's happening, O follower of Christ, when you've run out of gas? Among many possibilities, I think this is probably one of the chief one, and that is you have forgotten the resurrection. You have forgotten Easter reality and Easter truth, that Christ is risen and He is risen indeed. And so we have to come back to that again and again and again and again. That is a sermon that we cannot preach to ourselves too, too much. The resurrection. We have buried it. Heaven help us. We have buried the resurrection. We have covered it up and hidden it under pastels and colorful eggs and chocolate bunnies. Now, I'm, I, I've got no beef. Please don't. Okay. Those are great. Okay. But those are... My goodness, can we say those are extraneous? Those are not the central core thing of what this day is about and what it is that we are celebrating. Turn with me if you have a Bible with you this morning to John chapter 20. Uh, we're going to be reading from verses 1 through 18. It's actually a portion of the text we looked at in our earlier service this morning. Uh, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, and I'm just going to give a, a disclaimer. I'm not actually really teaching, preaching from this text, but it's sort of springboarded from the text, and I'll explain what I mean as, as we go, okay? This is one of the four accounts that we have of that first Easter morning, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 20, starting in verse 1. Hear now God's word. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He 
saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who were you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Would you pray with me just for a moment? Lord, thank you. Thank you for these, bringing these events to pass and recording them for us. It is no light thing for us to have the privilege this morning of being able to open up the Holy Scriptures and to be able to read from your Word and to be, be doing so freely here in this place. There are people all around this world today, right now, who are celebrating Easter Sunday, but having to do so in hiding for fear of being discovered. We, we thank you for the freedom to do that here this morning. We pray that you'd help us not to take that for granted, nor the text that we have here in front of us and this opportunity that we have here to engage with it. We have no idea how many more opportunities we have to read in your word. And we thank you for this one here and this assembly here and this time here. And we pray that you would intersect with our lives. You, O oh Holy Spirit, the one who inspired the Apostle John to, to write just what you wanted to be written, no more, no less, recording, recording what happened. We pray that you would intersect those words with our hearts, write them upon our hearts, and change our lives. And we ask these things in the name of the risen, reigning Jesus. Amen. Some things are too unusual to ignore. They're just too unusual to ignore. Case in point, early in the wee hours of the morning this past Tuesday, the blood moon. Now, I think because of weather conditions and clouds, we around here in this part of the, the country didn't get to see it. But the blood moon, that is to say, the perfect lunar eclipse where the moon and the, the earth line up just right, and the sun, if you will, is peeking through the earth's atmosphere and the light is bent, and that's all I understand about the science, but the moon looks blood red. And scientists can tell us exactly how that happens, and they can tell us exactly when it's going to happen in terms of you know, what the next date is and, 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 and where you need to be, by the way, on the surface of the planet in order to see the next blood moon uh, through the centuries. 
the ancients would see such sights up in the heavens and would, would understand it to be a sign of, of some sort. Something cataclysmic was happening. In our day, it came on tax day actually, so I don't know what people were thinking this year, but, but in our day, people see such sights and at the very least, oftentimes, and I was reading of testimonies to this very point in reporters and different articles this past week on this topic, People at least, at the very least, they might not have seen it as a sign of some cataclysmic event, but it, they were forced in many occasions to pause. Whoa, that is really different. To pause and to ponder some of the great questions, the great issues of their lives. Well, the resurrection of Jesus is kind of like that, in the sense that there are some things that are just too unusual to ignore. It fits in that category, but it also blows up the category because it's so, you just can't even fit that in that category. Some things, this thing, is too unusual to ignore. The resurrection of Jesus is the most significant event in the history of the world since the beginning of the world. How could it not be? Dead men don't just get up and start walking around every day. No one was expecting this. No one was expecting this. It affects everything. How, how could it not? It, it affects our, our thoughts on who God is, if you really think about it. It affects our thoughts as to who God is and who, what it means to be human. And it affects the, the great questions and how we weigh them in terms of meaning and purpose and priority and the place of such, such things that we get so fixated on, like money and sex and power. It puts them in their places, if we'll but think about them, or just out of the ordinary struggles that we go through on a day-by-day -day basis, our relational issues and the grist that we feel, or, or just, just, can I just say everything? It just affects everything. This is the most significant event in the history of the world since the beginning of the world. Now, here's, I'll give you a little clue, a trade secret, a preacher's trade secret on Easter Sunday. I've got a lot of different options in terms of the direction I can go at this point. Right? Because you see, if the resurrection is real and it affects everything, it means I can go in just about any direction in terms of talking about how it's significant and where. And by the way, it is real. It did happen. If you'll but I'm gonna give like 30 seconds of this, okay? If you will but give an an honest hearing to the overwhelming evidence. Let it speak. You'll see that this was a real historical event. We can talk about that at the end of the service if you want to. There's a lot to talk about there as well. Okay, so the resurrection. Christ is risen. You don't have to follow with the response. Christ is risen. Okay? That means far more than we can imagine. The implications of that. High up on that list is this. If Jesus is risen, if he's not somewhere in Jerusalem pro providing fertilizer for flowers, if the tomb is empty, if Jesus is risen, if Easter is real, it means he is who he said he was. You with me? If Jesus is risen, and he is, it therefore means he is who he said he he is. And we cannot afford to play around with that and ignore it 
and let it go by. We have to wrestle with who then did he say he is? That's, that's the question before the house. If he is who he said he is, who did he say he is? Who did he say he is? And that's where John's gospel comes in so helpfully at this point. Now, this is why I said earlier I'm not actually moving into chapter 20. I want to start there, read that one account, and then look around through John's gospel together for the next few minutes and look at just in that one book, within this larger book, who did Jesus say? Or should I say, does Jesus say? Who does Jesus say? that he is. And even being more specific, I'm going to hone in on this, the I am statements of John's gospel. John helpfully gives us seven of them, seven I am statements, and they, they come from Old Testament history going way centuries back to the Exodus when Moses is standing there at the burning bush and he says to God, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says to God, you're sending me to this people. They, they're going to want to know, well, where do you get off saying these things and assuming the mantle of leadership and all of that? Who shall I say sent me? And God answers from the burning bush, tell them I am has sent you. Now then centuries later, Jesus again and again and again, hearkening back to that moment, keeps saying, I am, I am, I am, regarding himself, intending for us to make the connection in terms of who he is. He is the I am. And there are seven of these, in particular in John's Gospel, and we're gonna, I'm going to group them under three headings, and you can see it there in your outline. These three headings, and the seven fall under these three headings. One, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Two, he is the revealer of God. Three, he is the giver of life. Jesus is the savior of the world. He is the revealer of God, and he's the giver of life. Those are startling statements, but they, and they only make sense if you can back them up. But with the resurrection, you see, he has. He has. So first, let's look at these in turn. He is the savior he is the Savior. We're going to start with John 14, verse 6. It's a text that I'm going to come back to again and again. Before we're done, you're going to have John 14, 6 memorized. And that's not such a bad exercise this morning. John 14, verse 6 is in the context of a discussion with uh, Thomas, one of the disciples. Jesus says, John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you hear what he's saying? He's not allowing for the possibility of there being many ways, many paths, many roads, many highways to heaven. Jesus is not allowing for that possibility. He is saying to Thomas, Thomas, I am going to the Father, and I am how you get there. I am going to the Father, and I am how you get there. I am the way. Or another place we could go. Again, Jesus, this resurrected one, showing himself to be the Savior of the world. John 10. John chapter 10. Verses 7 through 9. Listen to what he says. So Jesus again said to them, this is in the context of discussion with the religious leaders, not a friend, but a foe or foes. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and go out and find pasture. Jesus is alluding to the fact that there are false ways. And you can say if you want to, there are many ways. Just be clear. Say there are many false ways. Let's just be honest. There are many false 
ways. Despite their appearances, despite the accoutrements and the decorations and the fluff, there are false ways, which then Jesus then is the necessity of the reality of Him speaking, revealing Himself as the true way, the true way to God. The true way to becoming a part of, you look at the analogy he's using here, becoming part of the flock. The true way, the door, the access to being the the, the blessing, to having the blessing of God's care in your life. This is an astonishing claim. I am, you know, the heading, the Savior. It's an astonishing claim, but it's founded on, grounded on, an astonishing event. The resurrection. If he's raised... This is true. And he is raised. This is true. Some of you may have heard this analogy used, um, trying to describe how we know God. The mountain. The, the idea being that there's this mountain. At the bottom of the mountain, there's all these people. And all the people are trying to get up to the mountain. There's all these paths, all these trails. And it does, really doesn't matter which one you pick, right? It doesn't matter which path, which trail that you take, because they all eventually, some are more direct, some are winding and, you know, harder than others, but they all end up in time getting up to the mountain. And the analogy is this. The point of the story is this, that getting to God is like that. All the paths, all the religions, all the philosophies, all the worldviews, yeah, they're different, but they all get you to the same place, up to the top of the mountain. There are huge problems with that idea, with that analogy, with that metaphor. I'll just give you one real quickly, and that is they're incredibly disparaging and disrespectful to the varying views of every one of those faiths, for instance, in terms of who this God is that you meet at the top. They just That analogy just dismisses that completely. It, it, it claims to be tolerant. It is actually incredibly intolerant and inconsiderate and disrespectful of all these different ideas and perspectives. So let me give you a better metaphor. Not a mountain, but a maze. Okay, imagine you're at one of these grand estates in Europe, okay, and you've got these eight-foot-high hedges, and it's the maze, right? And you've got to get somehow to the center of the maze. You've got to find your way. And there are many paths. You start off at the very at the gate, and you've got to ask yourself a question. How do I get there? Which path do I choose? Some paths hit a dead end right away. Some paths go pretty far into the maze and hit a dead end. Some paths parallel one another for a long, long time, and they eventually break off. But only one makes it to the center of the maze. Now, here's why that's a better analogy. It is not disrespectful to all the other paths. It acknowledges the parallels. It acknowledges the similarities between them. For instance, I'll give you two examples. One, Hinduism and Buddhism both hold to karma and reincarnation. The parallels of this, this metaphor acknowledge that. Judaism, Islam, Christianity acknowledge monotheism. There's one God. It acknowledges the parallels there. It's respectful. It's also, let me push a little further, you're waiting for this. It's also honest. Because this model doesn't just acknowledge the parallels to the past, but the fact that there are dead ends to all the past but one. All the other paths but Jesus only get you but so far into the maze. Um, I'll give an example there, too, actually. Uh, karma. You may recognize karma, basically the, the idea of, of what goes around comes around, that, that sort of cosmic sense, you know, he or she had it coming based on how they lived their prior life, that, that sort of thing. Do you know what that does, why that's such a dead end? It totally 
um, it, 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 it encourages a fatalism to your life. You've got no hope. Why? Because in your last life, that's what you did, and so whatever happens now, you just had coming. Deal with it. Sorry. Deal with it. Or even worse, you want to be socially conscious? Why, if you believe in karma? Why do acts of mercy and justice? Because those people in the flood, in the hurricane, in the earthquake, in the fire, whatever it is, they had it coming because of what they did in their past life. Get out of the way. Karma. You see, it's a dead end. It's a dead end. Here's another one, uh, a works-based religion. I'm going to use Islam as an example here. Okay? There's a lot of beautiful things that can be found in terms of the discipline and, and the, the necessity of, of mercy, works of mercy, but here's the thing. You can never know when you've done enough. There's no peace. There's no assurance. There's no, if you're really going to push that to the wall, it's going to take you right into the wall. Hear what Jesus says. I am the way. I am the way. I am the way. He is the Savior of the world. He is risen and risen indeed. That's the first point. The second, He is the revealer of God. Can we know God? That's the big question upon facing us so often, uh, plaguing us so often. Can we know Him? We can, actually. Back to John 14:6, the, the touchstone text. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now by that, Jesus, well, he does mean I bear the truth, I communicate the truth, I'm conveying the truth. But it's not just that. It's he's saying, I am the truth. I, I, am, I am not just revelation from God. I am, I'm not just bringing revelation from God. I am the revelation of God. I am God. I know I'm mixing Easter and Christmas, but... I am God in the flesh. You want to know what God is like? Look at me, Jesus is saying. Now, outside of the resurrection, that's madness. But with the resurrection, it's the most beautiful thing to hear in the world. We can know who God is. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Another place that we could do, excuse me, look at is John chapter 8. John 8. Um, Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Darkness. Jesus alludes to the reality of, of ignorant minds and evil hearts and the necessity of light, of someone who will reveal God. Again, this is an astonishing claim, but it is grounded on an astonishing event. You know, and it's interesting, in just the next chapter over, John 9, you see, Jesus in John 8 declares, he says, I am the light. In John 9, he demonstrates it, he shows it. In the healing of a blind man, verses 1 through 7, John 9, listen to this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he proceeds to put his hands upon this man's eyes and heal him. He says, I'm the light of the world. He shows that he is the light of the world. Can you imagine being there that day? watching those events 
unfold. What, what wonder. So much we could say about John 9 and, and that miracle, but what, what a wonder. But let me just say this simply. It's an end of our questions. In the end, it brings an end to the questions. You know, is there a God? This happened. Is there a God? Yes. Can we know Him? Yes. Can we know what He is like? Yes. Look at Jesus. We can know this God. We can open up the pictures, the pictures, the pages of the Holy Scriptures and see who this God is and know Him. He is risen. He is the revealer of God. There in Him we see who God is. Lastly, the third point. He is, as I've said, the Savior of the world, the revealer of God, and the giver of life. We, we ask the, the question, or maybe we've heard the question, what's the source of life? What's the secret to life? People write books and more books and more books about this. Here we have the answer. Back to John 14, 6. You got it memorized yet? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, Scripture makes it very clear that he is certainly the author of physical life. He was there at creation. He was an active agent, uh, very much so in terms of everything that is, is because of Jesus. But that's not really what Jesus is getting at here in John 14. He is talking about how he brings life to life, spiritual life, flourishing, fulfillment, and he shows this with these other uh, analogies that he gives here. I'm just going to uh, fly through some of these just for time's sake. In John 10, he describes himself as being the good shepherd. In John 11, he describes himself as being the resurrection and the life. Not just that he brings resurrection and life, but that resurrection and life are so much, a, it just flows out of him. He is the embodiment of resurrection and life. John 11. John 15. Uh, let's go there. John 15, verses 1 through 5. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Skipping down to verse uh, 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Do you hear the hope of flourishing? of life, the possibility of flourishing in life. Now, But how does it come? How does it come? Again, Jesus is the giver of life. He is the true vine. How does it come? He says, by abiding in me, by relying on me, in relationship with me, in dependence upon me. I am the giver of life. Lastly, the bread of life. Going back to John 6. This is actually the very first of the I am's in John's Gospel. And those of you who are getting blisters because you're turning so much, I appreciate that in John's Gospel. It is your last one. John 6, verse 35. This is in the context of a larger discussion about manna, and manna being that uh, heaven-sent provision from God to the Israelites during the course of their wanderings in the wilderness after the Exodus. Remember Charlton Heston, right? They probably showed it, showed it this time. And maybe they're showing it this afternoon on TNT. I don't know. But anyway, verse 35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Bread is what? The most basic food. The most basic means by which we are sustained. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the satisfaction 
for your souls. I am the nourishment for your spirit. I am the bread of life. Again, this is back into the main heading. He's the life, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the true vine, and the bread of life. He is the giver of life. What is the source? What is the secret to life? Jesus is saying, I am. Again, that's an astonishing statement to make, but it is grounded, it is connected to, it flows out of the fact that he is raised. Christ is risen, therefore we can know he is who he said he is. Who did he say he is? Among many things, he says, I am the bread of life, the giver of life. Life is found in me, flourishing, fulfillment, all of it. You want it, you're hungry for it. Find it in me. Find it in me. My friends, you, are hung- you may find yourself this morning hungry, weak, and empty. Think why. Why are you hungry? Why are you feeling weak? Why do you feel empty inside? It can only mean you're feeding upon bread that does not sustain. And that is why you are hungry and weak and unfulfilled. Jesus is a completely different kind of bread. The bread that sustains. He is risen, promising everlasting and ever-deepening life. He is the giver of life. Okay, we're going to wrap this up. Again, John 14, 6 is what? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Good, very good class. It's not that, just to clarify this, Jesus does not say, oh, by the way, if you're wondering, I know where to find it. I know where, let me tell you about it. I read a good book. I can take it as somebody. He's not saying, I know, I'm familiar with, I'm acquainted with the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am. I am. Now, we say in response to that, because of how we're raised and how we tend to think today, that's so narrow. That's so exclusive. Are you telling me, are you telling me that you really think you're right and everyone else is wrong? I I thought we'd move past all that sort of thing. Okay, full disclosure, you're right, I do believe I'm right. I do believe this is the way. I do believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I do believe that I'm right. And you know what? So do you. Everyone believes they're right. Everyone is exclusive in their beliefs. Everyone has a belief set, a view, a worldview, a perspective where they believe their way is right and the rest of the world would get along much better if they would come along to their view, even those who say there is no one right way. See, that's a a view. That's a view. And they're saying, if you don't accept my view, that there is no one right view, then you're wrong. But you can't say, you see where it's, it's like, you know, it just doesn't work. It feeds back on itself. So the question, you see, we're all exclusive. Every philosophy, every worldview, every religion is exclusive. The question that is not, is this exclusive? The question is, is is it true? Is it right? Does it fit to what we know according to our experience in this world? And I would challenge you to see that this does indeed fit. Let me come in a different way. All religions, all philosophies, all worldviews are exclusive. Every single one of them, including Christianity. However, Christianity is the most inclusive of all of them. They're all exclusive. 
But Christianity is the most inclusive of all. You know why? Because every other worldview, every other philosophy, every other religion says you've got to do this and do it right. You've got to check off the, this box and do these things and don't screw it up. Don't drop your guard. Keep going if you want to be accepted. If you want to be right. And Christianity begins with this assertion. None of us can do that. It begins with a baseline of recognizing all of us fall short. None of us can attain the standard. None of us. Our only hope is to acknowledge that and to come with empty hands before the risen Lord Jesus and say, your work on the cross, once for all, finished, is enough. And I'm trusting you. That's it. Yes, it's exclusive. But my friends, it is far more inclusive than any other thing out there. Do you believe it? Do you know it? Have you embraced it? This Easter, pastels, great. Chocolate bunnies, great. Got leftovers? Talk to me. But let me say the best thing you can do this Easter in terms of celebrating Easter is one, consider that evidence. Weigh it. Think about it. Prosecute it. Listen to it. Let it speak. And then take the plunge and consider its significance. Because if it's true, it changes everything. Nothing is the same. Nothing is the same. And it is true. And Jesus is who he said he is. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day, the first in the week where we mark and observe and celebrate the most important day in history, where the tomb was empty. There are witnesses, that empty tomb, those angels, those women, a movement exploded out of that, bearing the truth that Christ is risen. This means more than we can imagine. Dawn has come, throwing light on everything that there is. You are indeed who you said you are. And you want us to know that. And maybe that's equally amazing. That you are who you said you are. And you want us to know that. We ask that you would help us here. To hear what it is you've said in terms of who you are as the Savior and the Revealer and the Giver. Help us to hear and then to live, live, really live out of that. In your name we pray. Amen.